Hello, this is Up Talk from Chatelaine, and I'm your host, Rachel Giza. Welcome back. We're excited to be releasing more episodes this fall. We'll be featuring conversations with Tegan and Sarah, Tanya Tagak, Emma Donahue, and more. And on this episode... It was only until I had kids and met Soloway, I think, that I was like be able to like trust my own voice. Actress Catherine Hahn, she plays the rabbi Raquel Fine on Transparent. We'll talk about how she, a Catholic, prepared to be a rabbi and how the experience of becoming a mother helped her carve out the career that she's always wanted. That's Catherine Hahn coming up on UpTalk. But first, let's debrief the week that was. You could call it a Braxit, Brangelexit, whatever you want to call it. Brangelina is no more. Angelina Jolie has filed for divorce from Brad Pitt. Twitter exploded. Why do we care so much about this breakup? And also, Canadian actress Tatiana Maslany finally, finally won for Orphan Black, which was a win for the nerds. There were stirring speeches from Jill Soloway and Jeffrey Tambor, and Alan Yang wants better representation than Long Duck Dong. Yep, we're going to talk about Emmys 2016. Plus, a fourth Alberta judge is now facing criticism for using myths and stereotypes about sex assault victims. We'll discuss Justice Robin Camp. Joining me now to debrief it all, Naila Kalita May. She is a professor of theater and performance at the University of Waterloo. Hey, Naila. Hi, Rachel. Hey. And Monica Heisey, a writer, comedian, and the author of I Can't Believe It's Not Better. Hello, Monica. Hi. Um, R.I.P. Um, Brangelina. <laughs> Twitter is mourning. Twitter, Facebook. I mean, what is fascinating in that in the middle of, you know, conversations about, you know, in the U.S. in particular about, you know, Trump and Clinton and and, and the Skittles mess and all of that, I feel like so many people just like stopped and had to have (laughs) their hot takes on the the fact that uh, Angelina Jolie has filed for divorce from Brad Pitt. I'm um, devastated. <laughs> I just, sorry, I just needed to say that. Keep going, please. I mean, is this, I mean. It does feel very sudden. I feel like yeah. I was just reading <laughs> useless stories online about them loading up the minibus of taking their kids to the grocery store and stuff. But um, do the youngs even know much about Brad and Angelique? But you know what I mean? Like, <laughs> you, you gave me, because I'm not a young. Okay. But, but I feel like, like, does anybody under the age of 30, like, do they have I'm 28 much? years old. Okay. But okay, so you are young then. So how do you Here I am. feel? Everyone gather around. Yes. <laughs> yes. Millennial. <laughs> Tell us how this works. But I sort of feel like they are not that current really in their pop culture relevancy or am I wrong right like like teenagers probably don't care it's like your parents being like oh my god Brad and Angelina are getting divorced and I'm being like are those your friends like right you know a couple like you know Jay-Z and Beyonce have much more cultural of the moment relevancy Mm. that that Brad and Angelina don't so I'm just curious as to why this took up so much space when the news broke because they're not people who I feel like are are at the forefront of culture at the moment they're not people who are they nostalgia figures I mean for the people who are kind of making the decisions about what's breaking yeah. news a little bit oh that's that's actually good, that's yeah, good that they're, yeah. like big celebrity portmanteau yes i think like you're right brangelina mm. was like what started that whole yeah. thing thing um i feel like they were they were the maybe the first or one of the early versions of 
um, like when you took two stars and mushed them together yeah. to yeah. make a mega star mm-hmm. um, out of them. And yeah. they've played that really well. You know, like when their kids with their twins were born and they sold the pictures, so mm-hmm. they, but then they donated the money to charity. Right. Yeah. So they like kind of got ahead of the press while also participating absolutely in yeah. that cycle. Mm-hmm. Um, I think it's like seeing a really well-built machine fall apart. It's oh, also yeah. generational Hollywood, too. So they have, you know, a lot of, through Angelina Jolie, there's like a lot of, um, of buy-in in that sense. Mm-hmm. And they did that kind of boho leftist chic right she let her kids ride on her wedding dress right like that whole thing (laughs) they did that really well i do think you're right like the liberal the liberal media i think probably (laughs) yes trump (laughs) i think probably really liked them right because they were like they were like beautiful and part of the celebrity machine but also they weren't going to get married until gay marriage was legal yeah. for everyone and like they had this exciting international life where all of their kids yeah. that they adopted from all these countries were learning their own languages but also they had this like beautiful family like I think there was a lot of myth making there yeah. and it's the kind of myth making that was leading towards them being like very beautiful and old together and now it's it's not that way so they're getting a divorce yeah that's what people do right <laughs> it's a thing it's a thing that happens can we talk about the jennifer aniston memes that have been proliferating in the wake of this divorce people are posting a lot of like pictures of jennifer aniston looking smug mm. and i feel like that is so boring and misogynist to suggest that this woman who's been divorced from this man for like what, like 10 years, 10 like it's years? been 10 years and it's like, there's At still least. stories about sad Jen and, and sad she's Jen's moved, she's barren married to and, someone else. Yeah. Even if she wasn't. Yeah. True. Absolutely. Right? But it's like, you really think that's the thing she's holding on to the hope that her ex-husband of many, many years will then get divorced himself. It's the storyline of the scorned woman. Of the scorned white woman, mm. the beautiful white scorned woman, right? Like it's that storyline that just it kind of is the never ending, and it's part of as part of what makes Brad and Ed, Ed made Brad and Angelina as big as they were, right? Because she was supposed to be the exciting temptress, yes, with boring old Jen at home, as if they weren't just two very normatively beautiful white women, like <laughs> like as if there was like this huge contrast between these two hyper gorgeous like classic celebrities, right? Okay, so let's talk about the Emmys. It was a very big night for women, um, openly queer women and diversity all around. Regina's own, Tatiana Maslany, she won an Emmy, a single Emmy, for playing six characters flawlessly on the sci-fi show Orphan Black. It's the first time that a Canadian and a Canadian show won a dramatic acting Emmy. I'm so happy for Tatiana Maslany. <laughs> yeah. I, um, I think she's amazing. She's someone who... Um, I've been watching perform since I was a teenager because she was also in the Canadian improv games with me. She beat my team uh, at the (laughs) Nationals in like 2003 or something. My mom for a while refused to watch Orphan Black because of it. So I think, (laughs) I know my mom holds a grudge. Yeah, she really holds a grudge. I was like, mom, it's fine. I think the whole point of those games was not to care who won. Um, (laughs) But uh, she's she's someone who's been so talented um, for so long in Canada and everywhere else. And so it's amazing to see um, her getting recognized for that. And I think it's really heartening for the performing community of Canada Comedians in particular, because she sort of comes from that. But I, I would assume for actors and and other kinds of creators um, to see work that's that's made in Canada and largely by Canadians get recognized on, I mean, an American scale, which is basically an international 
scale. A lot of the time it can feel like you have to leave Canada to get um, recognized within Canada. But Tat was working for a long time here um, and also like, over there. Like, you, you're so <laughs> she's you, in. She's in. Tat. Everybody in the besties. comedy <laughs> community loves her. Um, what, what did you make of the night, Nayla? I'm a little tired of the Emmys. Whoa. <laughs> and of like the award shows in general. Oh, okay. Yeah. So I'm really... So I, it's hard for me. I remember a time when it was a night mm-hmm. that, you know, I had to schedule and look and watch to see the performances and like the, the, the speeches and whatnot. And that moment has really passed for me. We had the Oscar So White of 2015 and really kind of highlighted the institutionalized um, lack of diversity that people have known have been taking place for decades and decades and decades and so yes it's wonderful to see these shifts taking place but at the same time I I, I have just lost credence in those institutions because they could have done this work a long time ago when I think about uh you know uh Jill Soloway she's the woman behind um Transparent she won for directing um which is uh I have in my notes the most exclusive boys club category um and in her speech, she talked about how when you put people of color, queer people, and trans people at the center of the story, you change the world. And she called TV a revolution. Is that like, do you think that's, that's being kind of self-aggrandizing? Like, or do you think that that's true? That when you actually put people who have been shut out of these avenues for storytelling, like television, that it actually is a revolutionary act to start telling so stories. those stories are always, I get, the question is always who's hearing the stories because those stories are always alive in their communities. Um, and so, yes, it's undeniably important when those stories are able to move to the forefront in particular kinds of ways. But that story and the idea of transparent is only possible because people are actually doing that work and living those lives and have, and have been all of the grassroots activists, people who have been organizing um, for trans communities and LGBTQ communities to have rich and um, safe and uh, equitable lives and opportunities. But at the same time, I think I want to be mindful of the idea of that being the revolution Right. You know, as opposed to all of the work that so many people have done to bring it to a space where the mainstream is even paying attention right. to it. Right. Well, you work in TV, Monica. So, like, what do you <laughs> what do you make? Like, do you agree? Like, do you think that it is a revolutionary act to be I mean, I doing this? In the context of how TV has been, sure. But I think that you make a really good point about calling that a revolution is, is a lot. It's certainly revolutionizing It's within the industry, but that is not... Um, that is not the most meaningful revolution. Mm-hmm. Uh, this year, there were uh, a record number. And again, it's interesting to think about like this being a record number. So a record number of people of color won for acting this year. So there was uh, Rami Malek. There was Courtney B. Vance, Regina King, uh, Sterling K. Brown. They all took home trophies. Aziz Ansari and Alan Yang uh, won a writing Emmy, Emmy for Master of None. So again, I think there's a lot of people who look to this and say, um, you know, movies are like, you know, films are way behind where television is in terms of diversifying writers rooms, in terms of diversifying who we see on on screen. But I'm wondering, like, who is still like left out? And again, 
getting back to this point where I think this does feel revolutionary for a lot of people. But um, I guess if you guys don't buy that, um, that it's revolutionary, what would feel like a real, like a sea change in, in this world? Well, Jeffrey Tambor kind of spoke to that a little bit in his speech and his comments afterwards about wanting to be the last cisgender man playing a transgender woman um, on television, which is like, it's a funny situation for him to be in, right? As someone who's been so rewarded for doing this exact thing that he thinks needs to stop happening. (laughs) Um, uh, And it's a complicated thing because I completely agree with him while also thinking that his performance is very impressive. Mm -hmm. But I think that's, for example, a really, a really good way to make sure that something that would be really revolutionary is just having people getting to talk about like their own experiences or portray their own experiences who haven't been able to do that before. So like Alan Yang was talking about, you know, being a funny Asian man and you don't, you don't get to see a lot of those. You don't have a lot of funny Asian men running shows. You don't have, I'm not aware of any trans showrunners mm-hmm. um and i think those voices are really important to have people not just acting not just in a writing room but in charge i think that's mm. that's really important mm-hmm. right well let's um let's let's move on to a different topic uh uh, uh, uh sort of maybe a more of a sobering topic for Four Alberta judges are under scrutiny for making rulings based on myths and stereotypes about sexual assault victims. Um, the most high profile is, of course, uh, uh, Justice Robin Camp, who was made a federal court judge, but before that, he was a provincial court justice in Alberta. Back in 2015, he was presiding over a, a sexual assault case, and he, among other things, asked the complainant why she just didn't keep her knees together. He also kept referring to her as the accused throughout the trial. Now, he is facing a Canadian Judicial Council inquiry, which is going to determine whether or not he is actually fit to keep his job. So, Naila, what do you think is riding on on this question about whether or not uh, Robin Camp will be allowed to keep his job as a judge? Well, in a sense, it's about public trust. You know, there is very little to suggest to any victim of sexual assault or rape that they should go to the judicial system to receive justice. Like, there's very little that would suggest that that's a good Mm-hmm. idea yeah and so while I, I don't think it's useful to make examples of people I think that we are many people are probably watching this case um, or watching this hearing and, and mm-hmm. looking to see the results to understand if the judicial system is a place yeah where um, people who are claiming to have been victims of sexual assault can go mm-hmm like, I don't know. I, I mean, I wrote about this for Shad Lane and he like, he really, I don't know, there's something about this case that has just gotten under my skin. I think just the way that he talked to this, this mm-hmm. woman, I, you know, I think cause it's just, you know, he told her to keep her knees together. He told her that he should like, you know, she, she was, she was raped in a washroom. Um, um, and, uh, you know, he at one point said, you know, why didn't you just like put your bum into the sink so that he couldn't penetrate you? I mean, the stuff that he said was just so, I mean, maybe I shouldn't be. I don't know. Were you shocked by it's it, Monica? Like, like, am I, am it's I... like cartoonishly insensitive. Yeah. It's, it, I mean, that's what's so interesting to me is that there's an inquiry at all after someone behaves that way in an official position, um, allegedly in the quest for justice. Yeah. It just seems so biased. It seems so uninterested in hearing the testimony of 
of the complainant in this instance, not the accused. Um, from the few friends I have, I know who have have reported or started the process of reporting and decided that it, it was not for them. I've never heard anyone say, you know, I reported my assault and it was a really positive experience <laughs> and I feel really good about it. It literally <laughs> never yeah, happens. Yeah. So, I mean, on the one hand, I'm glad that we're starting to talk about it and that at least someone is being looked into. I'm not even sure I realized that it was because I'd never heard of anyone fully going to trial. I'm not sure I, I realized the extent of how Hor horrible it was what yeah. a horrible experience that must be until this year seeing the really public Gomeshi trials right and then hearing about this which goes to show you how uh, rare it is to see these cases go to trial at all yeah and also his response is classic it's a classic response that people who are victims of sexual assault experience, right? That it's the, the dichotomy on the one hand that if a woman who is being sexually assaulted or a person who's being sexually assaulted in any way resists that sexual assault, then the chances for extra violence that they will receive increases, right? And so resisting means more violence generally. And so on the one hand, you know, you'll have officers or you'll have you know, people saying don't resist too much because if you do you're going to kind of engender more violence onto yourself and then 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 women Why are also told that you back. didn't resist enough yeah, yeah. right that you yeah. should have resisted and that not only are you supposed to be in the moment of being traumatized and violated and assaulted but then you're also supposed to have um the appropriate response to that violence you know and so there's this one article i was reading recently was talking about how when a businessman is mugged there's <laughs> never like how come you didn't protect your briefcase <laughs> <laughs> how come you didn't right. right there's never all of these yeah, assumptions yeah. about or yeah. all these expectations of what he should have done to stop himself from being mugged but when a woman or a person is sexually assaulted there are these expectations of the appropriate response yeah i mean i think what i just and again maybe i'm maybe i'm stupid to be shocked by it but i think that i feel i mean so he is like 64 65 years old he was educated in south africa he said he was unfamiliar with the canadian legal system but at the not same time not ideal for a judge in our legal system judge um but i also feel well, like i was thinking i would teach chemistry good but you're not familiar with the I'm subject not familiar, but i'm gonna teach <laughs> it anyway teach it i'm just gonna, gonna go ahead and grade some final exams exactly. of the graduate right. students so i mean so there, first of all there's the arrogance of it but also like am i am i i don't know i feel like how do you I mean, so, so some legal experts have said, you know, if there's more diversity on the bench, because the other, the other aspect to this is, you know, he's an old white guy judge. Um, the woman in this particular case was a 19-year-old Cree woman. Um, there have been other cases where, you know, racism has come into play in these cases in terms of assumptions about, um, you know, in this, in, this, in this case, indigenous women. Um, there have been legal experts who say, you know, you solve the problem by more diversity on the bench, that if you have different judges, they have different life experiences. Which, yes, but also I sort of think, like, isn't that kind of passing the buck? Like, it, like, I feel like if you are a judge, you should be, like, you should be educated on people's experiences. You know, like, it shouldn't take your own personal experience with crime to have you be a decent judge. Well, he is educated on people's experiences. So what his decisions make, or what his actions show, are the people who are valued, mm. Right. Yeah, yeah. So he is quite familiar with a whole host of people's experiences. <laughs> right. Right? Right. And so we've just been given a window or for many in many cases, I think for many of us, like affirmation about whose lives matter and which people's perspectives matter. 
Yeah, yeah. Okay, well, let's leave it there for now. Once again, um, my lovely panelists were Nayla Kalita May. She is a professor of theater and performance at the University of Waterloo. And Monica Heisey is a writer, comedian, and the author of I Can't Believe It's Not Better. Thank you so much. Thanks for having us. Thank you so much. Catherine Hahn is one of those character actors that you've seen in movies and on TV for years. If you've watched Anchorman, Step Brothers, Girls, Happy-ish, and Parks and Recreation, then you know just how hilarious and versatile she is. And now, in her 40s, she's moving out of her comedy niche as the best friend and into the center stage in both leading roles and playing more serious, sober characters. This summer, she starred in the hit comedy Bad Moms, and she was the lead in Jill Soloway's acclaimed new Amazon pilot, I Love Dick, which is not really what you think it's about. She's probably best known most recently for her role as the warm and level-headed Rabbi Raquel on Soloway's Emmy-winning dramedy, Transparent. The series stars Jeffrey Tambor as Mora, a transgender woman, and it tells a story of how Mora navigates her later-in-life gender transition and how it affects her ex-wife and three adult children, who are all, in varying degrees, kind of a mess. So here's how the third season opens. Thoughts on Passover. You wake up. With two words emblazoned on your chest. It's time. You're going to make a break for freedom. You will not be a slave anymore. You get out of bed. You grab your things. You run outside. And then... There you are. Free. First light of day. Behind you is your past. Everything you came from. Everything that you thought you knew. You start running. As you run, you listen for the voice of the divine, but you hear nothing. So you stop. You listen closer. What, what is that? Is it nothing? No. It is stillness. That's Catherine Hahn as Rabbi Raquel from the new season of Transparent. And here's our conversation. Welcome to UpTalk, Catherine. Hi. It's nice to have you. Thank you for having me. Um, So Rabbi Raquel, Mm -hmm. she is uh, in many ways the moral center of Transparent. Um, Now, you're not Jewish. You were raised Catholic. That's right. And I wanted to ask you how you prepared to play a rabbi. Oh, well, I mean, it it was daunting. First, if you try to go from the... The, just the intellect in it's like impossible to me like I never the twain shall meet like there's just no way I could have faked my way through the Torah or you know trying to speak Hebrew or going to rabbinical school or any of that I there's no way so I think what helped me as an actor is I met with uh, a rabbi that Jill had studied with this woman Susan Goldberg from Beverly Wilshire Temple in Los Angeles and she's just so rad she was a modern dancer. She, as a mom, like she just, she became a rabbi later in life. Like she's just, was an incredible model for me. And we met and had lunch. And I just remember the thing that stuck out to me was just her, she had first and foremost was her direct eye contact. Like the way that she kind of took you in mm-hmm. was very disarming. And I felt like that was a really, you, I just felt seen and I felt held. And I just felt like if I could, if that could be my way in hmm. 
for her, I just was that. So that was like that specific, I think, was yeah. going from there. And then um, they're just questions. Hmm. Like she just asked, she just kept asking so many questions. And so I just thought, oh, that's okay. Like I don't need to have all the answers. Right. Like in terms of and it, asking questions of you and sort of your own sense of the No, world, just about or? like just in her, in terms of her life. I mean, her faith, uh. of course, is rock solid. But like just, a, just still like the, the, what, the, what I didn't understand about Judaism and what was so beautiful to me was that there's so much of it is questions. is still questioning. And I thought that was a really beautiful way in as well, yeah. especially for this woman and this family, mm-hmm. uh, Raquel. Yeah. I'm always so curious for actors, the experience of playing roles. I wonder, does anything get metabolized in you when you sort of find that you get to keep some of those qualities? I mean, yes. are there roles where you leave and you're a little bit, you know, maybe kinder or funnier or more serious about something after you've played a particular character? That's such a good, yes, absolutely. And especially with Raquel, because I needed Raquel at that particular moment in my life. Like there was something about her stillness that I still take with me that I love. I mean, I've always kind of played the hurricane, I think, and I've never really been able to play that center. And there's something in that stillness and that eye contact and that like connecting there's something about playing like the kind of funny hurricane center that is a way of protecting myself from like being in, you know, the, whatever that intimacy is. And there's something in, well, a, just being on a Jill set, but B in, in Raquel, that was, was yeah. like, you couldn't, you, you, I wouldn't have been, I couldn't have played her had I not like tapped into something else. And, yeah. Yeah. And, and, and that, and that has stayed with you then. Yeah. That, that sense I think of so. stillness and quiet. I think so. Yeah. Yeah. Um, I mean, maybe not this morning. <laughs> well, you have had... But I've had a lot you of espresso. You say you've had a lot of espresso. <laughs> yes. <laughs> so you are your least rabbinical right now. Right. I think so. Or as she says, lounging on a couch right now. <laughs> I'm literally lounging on a crushed velvet couch. At it's the, perfect. At In the a beautiful Fairmont white York, yeah. Talking about, oh, it's a tough, tough life. It's a tough life. Yes. Being, being a rabbi. Yes, it really is. <laughs> Um, Jill Salway, the the creator of the show, has talked about trans being a metaphor for anyone transitioning from who they used to be to who they want to be. Um, Or who they are. Or who they really are, who Mm -hmm. they truly are. Um, And that that everyone is in the process, as she puts it, of becoming. Yes. Does does that resonate with you? For sure. And especially this is, you know, especially the season three, for sure. We always talked about how if, if if one was a Jewish scholar looking at this at transparent as a whole from afar, this would be you know the theme was Passover and liberation, and if the first if the first season was you know this transition and the second season is how it affects and then the third is like okay now I'm liberated now what now that this is like now what we're through the you know we've made it to the desert we're free now what mm-hmm. and you know, she also says if one person, you know, this whole thing, if one person in your family transitions, the whole family transitions, it's like what, you know, the echoes of this huge monumental change on everybody. Everybody constantly is, especially this family that has held on to this, you know, whether or not they were aware of it, was holding on to the secret for all of their lives. What does that do? Like, you know, you're kind of living in a culture of lying. Everyone, I think, is in. I think that's why it's reached more people than the niche niche audience than I than right I that had people may have anticipated finding right. it right that people may have assumed that it would be people who are familiar with trans issues people right. in the LGBT community right. who would be drawn to the show but or, no right who would have thought that this like 
kind of culturally Jewish family from the Pacific Palisades of Los Angeles was going to be like everybody's family. Like, I feel like Shelly, you look at her and you're like, oh my God, that's my mom. Yeah. Judith, that's Judith Light. Judith Light. Who was married to Mora. Who's Mora. Who played mm-hmm. by a Jeffrey Tambor who has since come out as Mora. Yes. Yeah. 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 It is interesting that something that is so specific um, becomes universal. Well, it, that's like such an ad. It's such a, a, a yet again, it's only through the personal that you can really, that it's the, it's the deeper you get to the more specific and personal that the more it is actually ends up being more connective. Like, because I do think this art, you know, we're in such a culture of like art by committee and these big studios. And the more, I, I just think that when you try to, the more you try to like, neutralize or whitewash something and try to reach as many people in one thing, the, the actually less specific it gets, the less there is to hold on to and the less, I think, revolutionary it can be. Yeah, yeah. What impact, I mean, obviously you talk to lots of people about the show and you hear the reaction to the show. What impact do you think the show has had already or will have on people understanding trans issues? So many, because it's not the, it's not, Certainly, it's an enormous part and cert of of the show, and certainly it is imperative that a, the trans voice is heard and that it's heard specifically. But it is also, you know, it's it's very important that that we are not as these as cis cis creators involved in this show, just like be playing pretend that it actually be like as authentic as possible because there because like any other human being there are a gazillion trans stories there are a gazillion trans experiences like no one falls into any kind of specific and I, I think that because again what we're saying about how specific it is to this family it feels familiar mm. and universal and I feel like then it's not so just doesn't feel so new or strange yeah. for a lot of people that have never yeah. come up, come you know have never had the privilege of knowing a trans person is like that that it doesn't feel as scary because it's not as different. Yeah, yeah. Um, it's interesting to me that you have carved out a career in the very small box that Hollywood typically has for for women, um, and in fact, it seems like now that you're in your forties, your roles are getting bigger and more interesting and, and more, more diverse. <laughs> yeah. yeah. Um, you know, you started in Bad Moms this year. You're in Jill Soloway's new pilot for Amazon, I Love Dick. Has it been a challenge for you carving out the kind of career you wanted, or do you feel like you've been able to make the kind of choices around your career? I feel like it did not. Um, I did not trust myself enough in my 20s to do... I was trying to, like, for sure fit into what I thought people wanted. And it was only until I had kids and met Soloway, I think, that I was like, be, was able to like trust my own voice. I don't have any social media, and I feel like that has been very helpful because I've just been able to just kind of slip around. Yeah, yeah, and do the kind of projects that you wanted yeah. and not yeah. not, not hear those I messages. Do, like, I dig a big a big swing comedy. And I always will. Like, yeah. I had a ball making Bad Moms. But I think about that. Like, you know, Bad Moms, also the, the role that you played um, on Parks and Rec. Like, mm-hmm. you, you, you tend to have these big, loud, kind of very comedic roles. And then in something like Transparent or in I Love Dick, it is a very different take on who you yeah. are. It's, yeah. it's a very, very different that's, role. That's the person that's also, like, was the... the it all comes from the same. It has to come from the same. I mean, I try that also all has to come from the same, like beating heart of truth. Like it also has to come from something true. You know, that's why I got into this whole mess in the beginning is to like be able to, you know, as an actor, that's all you want to do is play like different stuff. Yeah. 
Yeah. Um, in the last season, I want to talk about the, the plot line that, that happened with Rabbi Raquel. Um, she found herself in a relationship with one of the Pfeffermans, with Maura's son, uh, Josh. Um, it was not a great, he was not a, a great mature guy. Mm. And she had a miscarriage. And it struck me that like seeing abortions in television, in, in films, the, the story of miscarriage is not one that we hear much of. And I'm, I'm curious mm. about how it was to play that and how, and how you prepared to do that. Well... I mean, hard. I, you know, it's funny because I knew uh, just when we walked into the beginning of season two, and when I heard that she was pregnant when we first see her, and we had to, you know, Jane, I had to fill in a lot of dots between season one and season two because at the end of season one, you just don't think they're going to be together, <laughs> and then all of a sudden she's pregnant, and they're kind of, and she's marrying his sister. So we had a lot of like kind of homework to do to fill that in. But I, I think I don't know if Jay feels the same way, but I, I never, I just. I always kind of was never thought that this baby would was real. Yeah. Even from the beginning. I just was like, oh, that's never going to. And that's and I think that that kind of like of course seeped into Raquel. Like I think that there was something in her that was like we're playing family. Like we're just kind of playing house right now, but mm-hmm. there's something that feels a little bit hollow about all of this and I don't think it's real. And so it was also like it, it just important to us when the miscarriage actually happened that it not be overwrought or maudlin in any way that she was like a practical roll up your sleeves kind of a gal Raquel and that that you know okay we'll try again that it was like she was and I thought that that was such a more um you know her underlying want is for a baby in that belly and if it wasn't that time they would try again and so I, I really what I loved about it is it wasn't like a sobbing mess that there was something very practical and that also made it sadder to me yeah yeah. Well, it's interesting because also in the last season there, you know, especially with, with with Rabbi Raquel, there's a sense of her maybe having to live with, you know, she she is a woman who has this wonderful career that is very meaningful for her, but she clearly wants to be with somebody. She wants to have children and that might not happen. Yeah. And I, th- I think the show has touched upon that idea of you don't always get what you want yeah. and you have to live with compromise. Um, I think in, that might even be more true for women in a way. Um, what do you make of that question of, of compromise or, or maybe choices narrowing as, oh. as you get older? For sure. Yeah. You know, we're in such a culture of like a woman can have it all, which is like crazy. Because it sets up such crazy expectations that are like un- impossible because there's just the simple fact of biology. And yeah, it's unfair that a dude's sperm is... Keeps for such a keep long forever. Time. Oh yeah, for so, you know, like ninety years old. But like, I, but you know, and that it just sucks. And that that a that a woman's you know child bearing years and prime money making careers are the same time. Yeah, it's like it just like it's it it is totally totally sucks. Well, and you said earlier when you when you were talking about sort of figuring out who you were as an actor and and in uh, the roles that you wanted to play, you mentioned that it didn't take until after you had your kids. Yeah. And I'm wondering um, what that. Ex- I mean, I, I mean, I don't want to fall in the trap of asking a successful woman about being a mom, but it does feel that 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 having children can kind of force some choices, and and it helps you kind of go, okay, I can do this yeah. or this. Was, was it like that for you? The sort of experience of becoming a mother and having kids did that have an impact on the kind of choices you made in your career? Well, then it- what happened is I certainly did not give a shit about it. Uh, I, I just didn't care as much. And about I think, your about sort of career about success? Career. Yeah. yeah. I like everything I thought like what that would have been like, oh, this would make this would, is like does really doesn't matter. And why was that? 
because there's something else that's just more profound and more important than any of that. And because you also, all of a sudden time becomes very, very, very precious because you're like, you just want, you just want to make sure that you can look back and feel proud of the time that you were away from them, Mm -hmm. you know? Mm -hmm. And it's, I'm not saying it's not a a place of, that's what also this show also brings up, which I love too, is that just the idea of fucking privilege. It's like, how lucky that I even get that's I mean I hear these words coming out of my mouth and I'm like you're yeah you're such an asshole this you're the luckiest person in the world <laughs> like I'm yeah. not in any delusion like that that is a crazy lucky thing to right say. to be well yeah to be able to feel good to have that choice yeah, and feel good about at it at all right I mean right. that's it's insane right. yeah yeah and again I think in a show that that often talks about some people get to have the life they choose and a lot of people really don't yeah exactly um, it was a pleasure talking to you. Oh my God, Thank a you pleasure. so much. I know this wasn't the most hilarious podcast, <laughs> but this was really, really fun. It was great to talk to you. Thank you. Thank you. A total pleasure. That was my conversation with Katherine Hahn. She plays Rabbi Raquel on Transparent. The third season premieres on Amazon and Show Me on September 23rd. Thanks for listening. We want to know what you think, so send us your feedback. You can follow us at Chatelaine on Twitter and Facebook for more info and updates. You can subscribe to UpTalk from Chatelaine on iTunes or Google Play. And if you like the show, rate us on iTunes. UpTalk is produced by Rachel Matlow. The theme music is by Ralph. I'm Rachel Giza, and this week I'm giving the last word to Emmy winner Jill Soloway. Topple the patriarchy! Topple the patriarchy!